When I was a child, I asked my dad for something impossible. I asked him to build me a ladder to the moon. He finally built me that ladder when on the 21st of August, 2017, he took me to go see the Great American Eclipse. You're listening to Uncertainty Principle, the podcast. I first learned about the eclipse a few years ago, probably in 2013 or 14, shortly after I had developed an interest in astronomy, and I promised myself I would go see it in totality, no matter what. When I went home after the final semester of my senior year of college, my parents offered to fund a trip to go see the eclipse as a birthday present, as my birthday happens to be in the same month of August. After graduating with my degree in physics, I chose to stay in St. Paul, Minnesota, and one of the closest places from there to see the eclipse in totality was just south of Lincoln, Nebraska, about an eight-hour drive from St. Paul. The day before the eclipse, myself and a friend from school drove four hours down to the midpoint between the twin cities of Minnesota and the fields of Nebraska, Orange City, Iowa, my birthplace and where my parents lived. We arrived late the night of the 20th of August and went almost immediately to bed so that we could wake early at 6 the next morning on the 21st. With my father, Jeff, in the driver's seat, we began another four-hour journey down to Lincoln. We had talked a couple months earlier about getting a hotel room, but I foolishly rejected the idea as unnecessary, if not too late even as early as June when we spoke about it. The hotels would almost certainly be full by this point. We would realize our mistake when we witnessed the full effects of the eclipse on the American public as we made our way down south. It was smooth sailing all the way down to Omaha, no traffic or delays. That was until it was time to turn southwest to get to Lincoln. Immediately, the great migration to the eclipse became apparent. My father, wonderful as he is, insisted on taking a route without traffic, even after I told him the road with traffic was the fastest, despite the delays. As his son, I can empathize. We both hate standing still, even if it means taking the longer path. But it was harder to agree in that moment since I was not driving. But the glaciers of cars melting their way across the Midwest were almost as impressive as the eclipse itself. People going out of their way just to see a cosmic moment stood as a hopeful testament to the American public's interest in science and astronomy. When we finally got past Lincoln via a convoluted route, we found ourselves in the path of totality, where the moon would fully cover the face of the sun. My hope was to get us as close to the center of the path as possible, but we found ourselves out in the boondocks of Nebraska. I knew where I wanted us to be on the map, but following live weather and GPS became impossible with the loss of cell service. We had to watch the clouds. The weather outlook for this eclipse was not great from jump, and this was always a possibility. But I'd be damned if we didn't try, even if it meant an entire day wasted in a car. As we entered within range of totality, we noticed a rainstorm brewing to the south, so we stopped on some gravel road just north enough of the clouds that the sun was still visible. To the naked eye, the sun seemed that burning light that we shouldn't have been looking at in the first place. But once we put on our solar viewing glasses, the start of the eclipse became clear. 
A small chunk of the sun was obscured, like some colossal cookie monster had taken a bite out of it. But if you had no idea an eclipse was beginning, nothing would seem out of the ordinary. It was majestic, almost frightening, and reminded me of the time that I viewed a partial eclipse from my college campus in Minnesota, and I knew things were going to get even more interesting. As time passed on this dirt road in the middle of nowhere, I became worried about the clouds, and as the sun became obscured, I said that it was time to move. We traveled west until we got to a highway, and from there we traveled north, still within the path of totality. Here, the interest of the nation became more obvious as we drove past cars and onlookers parked in any place they could find near the four-lane. We ended up in a very small town underneath the shadow of a grain silo, along with many other onlookers. It seemed like a good spot, but it didn't last. After only a few minutes there, the clouds crept in once again, leaving us no choice but to travel north. The peak of the eclipse loomed, so we had to move quickly. A mile or two down the road, we found a small turnoff right by the highway with around 10 parked cars. Watchers waited for the full eclipse. It was 10 or 15 minutes until the sun was fully covered, and it was visible just north of the clouds previously obscuring the star. We were confident that we had found a good enough spot to view the eclipse. My father, like in all occasions, engaged with the nearby strangers. I got out my binoculars, and though it was unsafe to directly view the sun through them, please never ever do that, I aligned them with the sun and projected its light onto a piece of paper to magnify the sun. There you could see the shadow of the moon over our host star, as well as a few sunspots. My father helped me show his new acquaintances. As totality approached, the sky did not dim the same way it would, turning to twilight, but it turned yellow, as if the sun had become obscured by wildfire smoke. On the ground, we could see one of the lesser-noticed symptoms of a looming eclipse. Shadows now had sharper edges. On a normal sunny day, shadows have a bit of a softer edge, but when the moon begins to cover up the sun during an eclipse, the surface area of light coming from the sun decreases, leading to less diffuse edges on shadows. In the forest nearby, shots of fireworks were heard. The sound was so jarring and so close it sounded like gunfire. My anxiety about this unfamiliar cosmic event was compounded by that attack to the senses. Within minutes of totality, the clouds approached once again, barely obscuring the eclipse itself, which led one van screeching away to drive north of the cloud cover. One man tried unsuccessfully to stop them as they had left a phone on the roof of their car. As they sped down the highway, the phone flew off the roof and onto the ground, and was almost immediately run over by a truck. My dad, the ever-good Samaritan, tried to retrieve the phone, but was unsuccessful with the highway traffic. With the clouds creeping in, my dad asked me what we should do, whether to move or to stay. I chose to stay. It was too late to relocate now. Besides, the sun was only part of the show. Even though the eclipse was obscured, much of the blue sky was still visible to us. The beauty of the eclipse itself would be in the sun's visible corona, the outer layers of its atmosphere, like the fibers of an iris surrounding a pupil. But it was also utterly important to me that I see the changing of the sky. I wanted to see the afternoon turn to night in the space of seconds. Like I said, the moments leading up to this event were amazing, but not life-changingly so. But when the moon completely covered the face of the sun, In only a few seconds, the sky faded from daytime to twilight. A sunset in the middle of the day. 
The sky above grew dark, not as dark as the middle of the night, but dark enough to see a lone planet. It was so noticeable that my dad was able to get a picture of it with his phone. In every direction near the horizon, it looked as if the sun had just set. I lost all composure and hurled obscenities left and right in my own amazement. Mere moments before the eclipse ended, our hosting sun with the eclipsing moon peered its face through the clouds. For a few short seconds, we could see the corona. It was beautiful and awe-inspiring. At 1 p.m. on the 21st of August, it was evening. What made this eclipse such a big deal? Why did people flock to see it? Well, eclipses themselves aren't particularly rare, but that depends on what kind of eclipse you're talking about. A solar eclipse happens when the moon passes between the sun and the earth, blocking the sun. Not to be confused with a lunar eclipse where the earth lies between the sun and moon. A lunar eclipse is also an event you should witness because light from the sun passing through the earth's atmosphere is refracted, turning the moon an eerie red. Every sunset and sunrise on Earth hits the moon at the same time. Now, of solar eclipses, there are three types. There are partial solar eclipses where the moon only covers up a part of the sun. Unless you know about these, you probably wouldn't even notice they were happening. Less common are the total and annular solar eclipses. In a total eclipse, the sun is completely covered by the moon, but in an annular eclipse, the moon has a smaller apparent size in the sky than the sun, so the moon can't cover it completely, leaving a ring of fire surrounding the moon as it passes over. How does this happen? Well, the orbit of the Earth around the sun and the orbit of the moon around Earth are not exactly circular orbits. They have elliptical orbits, meaning they are slightly oval-shaped. In their orbits, they can be a little further or closer to what they orbit around. This means that the apparent size of the sun and moon in the sky can change, not enough to notice with the naked eye, but enough for eclipses to be different. Orbits also explain why we don't have a total or annular eclipse every month. Why wouldn't an eclipse happen every new moon? Well, the orbit of the moon is at a slight angle, so often the moon passes by the sun rather than over it, Everything has to line up for it to work. Now going forward, I'm only going to refer to total solar eclipses. Now like I said, total eclipses are not particularly rare. The astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson once noted that they happen more often than presidential elections. But this is only true for the whole planet. On a local level, eclipses are much less common. Many people don't have the time or the means to travel anywhere in the world to see an eclipse. The last time an eclipse happened in the United States was the 26th of February, 1979, passing through Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and exiting through North Dakota. The next total eclipse in the U.S. will be on the 8th of April, 2024, traveling from Texas to Maine. The 2017 eclipse that I saw traveled from Oregon to South Carolina, a coast-to-coast -coast event that made it accessible to many Americans. The last time that a solar eclipse traveled from the Pacific Ocean through the continental U.S. to the Atlantic coast was nearly a century ago during the eclipse of the 8th of June, 1918. This eclipse passed from Washington to Florida. 
The next time we will see an eclipse travel from coast to coast will be on the 12th of August 2045, traveling from California to Florida. Let's sidetrack for a bit. In 1915, Albert Einstein released his general theory of relativity. One thing that Einstein's theory predicted was that very massive objects, like stars or galaxies, would affect the curvature of space-time in such a way that they could bend the path of light itself. I talk about this on the episode The Cosmic Telescope, and the Hubble Space Telescope has taken images of this phenomenon in the deepest reaches of space. Astronomers have observed supermassive galaxies with such a strong gravitational well that they bend the light from background galaxies into rings that wrap around the foreground galaxy. We call these Einstein rings. But in the early 20th century, we didn't have high-powered space telescopes where we could observe gravitational lensing in deep space. So how could one test general relativity in this way? Well, the math tells us that the Sun is massive enough to have a small but measurable lensing effect on background stars. But with the brightness of the Sun outshining the stars, how could they be observed from a ground-based telescope? For this experiment, a total eclipse offers a convenient solution. With the light of day extinguished by the Moon, images of stars near the Sun can be taken, and their apparent position can be compared with their actual position in the sky, revealing whether or not the sun does indeed bend light. So the plan was made to verify general relativity during the 1918 eclipse by the U.S. Naval Observatory in Baker City, Oregon. Unfortunately, nature does not always work with us, and cloud cover during the eclipse did not allow the necessary observations to happen. So it was not until the eclipse of the 28th of May 1919, passing through South America and Africa, that the observations could successfully be made. But why should you see an eclipse, even go out of your way to do so? Having seen one myself, I can now see why the eclipse was such a magical, divine, and even apocalyptic event to some cultures. Light coming from darkness, it was such an unusual experience. Why should the sun disappear? It was an unforgettable moment, and I urge you, listener, to do everything in your power to see a total eclipse in your lifetime. It's an experience of the cosmos. It makes all the things we know about the solar system actually feel real. You see the very heavens in motion. Chase the sun until it disappears. It will be beyond your expectations. I'm Daniel James Barker. Keep exploring. Uncertainty Principle is supported by its listeners. You can support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash uncertaintyprinciple or by giving a one-time donation through PayPal. There's links for both in the description. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show, share the episodes with your friends, and review the show on iTunes. It really helps the podcast reach more listeners. Thanks for listening.